Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Lecture 5 in my 1989 Institute class titled Defending the Faith. Before I get to this class, I want to make a few precatory comments. First, I am very proud of the fact that the first half of this class deals with the issue of Joseph Smith and folk magic. This is in 1989. Let me give you a little bit of historical background so you can see that really this was an extremely controversial subject at the time when I was broaching it in my institute class. I did not want to shy away from the difficult issues and this was indeed a difficult issue at the time and place. This is something now that the church has gotten around to in 2019 when I am recording this introduction to admitting on its own church website in its church essays that Joseph Smith did practice folk magic, that he did have a seer stone that he used in his earlier years to locate treasure, to locate lost objects, and that he used the same seer stone in translating the Book of Mormon. But in the 1980s, this was all in a state of flux. The church had gone from a position where it actively denied Joseph Smith's engagement in folk magic, his engagement in treasure digging, and poo-pooed the affidavits of his neighbors, claiming that, in fact, that is what he did. These denials and deflections were made in official church publications such as the Enzyme magazine. But in the 1980s, all of that began to change. In 1983, Mark Hoffman produced a document later determined to be a forgery in which Joseph Smith allegedly talked about practicing folk magic in order to find treasure. The following year, in 1984, Mark Hoffman produced another document, this one called The Salamander Letter, which definitively linked magical practices with the angel Moroni and the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. That also was later determined to be a forgery. The fact is, though, that Mark Hoffman was not creating these stories out of thin air. Instead, he was creating his forgeries based upon ideas that were found in other documents that were legitimate from early church history. They were not saying exactly the same thing as Mark Hoffman said in his forgeries. He may have given them somewhat of a dramatic flair, but the reason that they were accepted as legitimate at the time is because they reflected attitudes and ideas that were mentioned in other early church documents that were authentic, but which the members of the church were not supposed to know about. At least the church did not mention them to the membership in official church publications or in general conference. Mark Hoffman committed his murders in 1985, October of 1985, in order to try and cover his tracks. In 1986, January, he was arrested. And so then, after that, it was found out that he was a master forger and that his forgeries occurred in his basement. But that was not the end of the story. In 1987, two books came out which dealt extensively with Joseph Smith's early practice of money digging. The first of those was D. Michael Quinn's Early Mormonism and the Magic World View, and the second of those was Richard Bushman's book, Joseph Smith and the Beginnings of Mormonism. Both of those, I believe, came out in 1987, and both of them dealt with the subject of Joseph Smith's practice of money digging. I do mention Richard Bushman's book, in the lecture. Unfortunately, I misattribute that book to Leonard Arrington. Actually, I should have said Richard Bushman. I noticed that when I was reviewing the lecture, much to my chagrin. So I do want to make that correction at the outset so that there's no confusion on the subject. It is Richard Bushman who wrote Joseph Smith and the Beginnings of Mormonism. So it is against this backdrop of new scholarship and new information coming forward regarding Joseph Smith's practice of folk magic in the 1980s, and particularly in 1987, that this lecture was given only two years later in 1989. In addition to dealing with the subject of folk magic, the second half of the lecture deals with commonly made complaints against Joseph Smith based upon statements that Joseph Smith himself made or was alleged to have made. This gets into the area of moon men. And of course, we will not allow the subject of moon men to go unremarked upon. Those would be the men who live in the moon who dress remarkably like the Quakers and live to around the age of 1,000. I think you may know what I'm talking about. If not, listen on and you will. Finally, I want to mention that some places in the recording, there are places where it sounds like there is a very bad edit being done, where there is a P 
pinching of the sound and perhaps a word or two are lost. This is not something that I am doing intentionally. This is a product of the recording process from the cassette tape into digital format. There's something in this player that unfortunately pinches the tape at random points. This is not something I'm doing. I'm not intentionally trying to leave out information. And I think that if you listen closely, you'll be able to follow the train of thought anyway. As I say, it's a very brief pinching and it only cuts out one, two, possibly three words. So I apologize for that. There are also a couple of places in this tape where there is a bit of background staticky noise. It doesn't last long. I'll tell you that up front. So continue listening. It will go away presently. I don't know what that's from. I don't know what to do about it. It's part of the recording now. And I guess I'll just have to live with it. And finally, finally, when I was at Sunstone earlier this month, on August 2nd of 2019, I did tell the audience that the adorable baby sounds that you hear in the background throughout these lectures are from my daughter, who was not even one year old at the time. She was present in every class, and she coos throughout. There are some places where she does more than coo. She seems to cry. Everybody's a critic. But I just wanted to let you know, that's why there's a baby in the class, because that's my baby. And my baby is now 31 years old. So let's return to those thrilling days of yesteryear. Radio Free Mormon, rise again. Here is Lecture 5 of my Institute class from spring of 1989 taught at the Institute building at the University of Texas at Austin. Play the tape. Well, I guess in that prayer I did two things, so I don't have to really introduce what I'm going to be talking about today. We will be talking more about Joseph Smith and claims made against him. First off, though, I'd like to get an update, give an update, on last week. Last week, I was reading uh, from the Mormon Illusion. Remember, we were talking about the first vision, and I uh, was commenting on this author's attempt to make it seem as long as possible from the time Joseph Smith had the first vision in 1820 to the time it was first uh, written down and recorded. And you recall he tried to make it all the way up into 1842. And this is where he quoted the Improvement Era as saying, quote, Joseph Smith's official account of his first vision and the visits of the angel Moroni was dot, 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 first published in the Times and Seasons in 1842, unquote. And Larry, right away, along with some of the rest of you, noted that that was not even when his official account came out. It was in 1838 that his official account came out. And so I, without checking any references, said that dot, 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 the ellipses, looks very suspicious. And I even went so far as to uh, conjecture as to what might be in there. Well, that may have sounded presumptuous at the time, but the fact is I don't trust anti-Mormons. And I have good reason not to. I went ahead and I have a copy now of the improvement here from which that is quoted. The reference is given in the back, here in the Mormon Illusion. So all I had to do was find it, which isn't an easy thing since it's 1961 July, but we have a pretty good uh, library over here as far as these go. Page 490, let me read to you what is being quoted. Joseph Smith's official account of his first vision and the visits of the angel Moroni was written in 1838 and first published in the Times and Seasons in 1842. So this poor dog, just to get another four years stretch out of that, was willing to omit was written in 1838 from this account. Now here's a particularly diabolical thing about this. What he's quoting from is a Hugh Nibley article dealing directly with the first vision issue. It's called Censoring the Joseph Smith Story. It's part one, and it deals with this issue precisely. Now I'm not saying this is the case though I'm hinting at it strongly, but I can imagine an anti-Mormon writer quoting from such an article that confutes his viewpoint and patting himself on the back for his own cleverness and then omitting some words to make it support his viewpoint. I'm not saying that's necessarily what happened, but I have a good idea it was. And then last night I came across something that seems to even be more conclusive along that line. Here is a... Uh, pamphlet, I guess you'd call it, tract, which was made to go out with the Godmakers movie. And it was written by Bob Witt. He has the audacity to sign his name at the end, so we know who it was. It's called Unmasking the Myths of Mormonism, and it has uh, many different quotes from different Mormons, basically, under different subjects, which should be, of course, found blasphemous by your basic Bible-believing Christian. The very last one says, no archaeological evidence. And here he has this quote. 
After nearly 150 years since the Nephite record was first published by Joseph Smith, we Mormons, this is a Mormon he's quoting, we Mormons have been unable confidently to pin down the location of a single city, identify even one route they traversed, or sketch an accurate picture of any segment of the life they lived in their American promised land. In many respects, the Book of Mormon remains a sealed book to us because we have been incapable of placing it in a specific date on this tract. Although uh, the film came out in 1983, I don't know when the research was done on this tract. However, if you will note that quote, since that time, or at any rate, recently, a book has come out called An Ancient American Setting for the Book of Mormon, written by Professor John Sorensen of BYU, which shows that this is completely out of date now. That is precisely what this book does. It pins down locations of cities, identify routes traversed, sketches an accurate picture of a segment of life, etc. It does all those things, and that's one reason why it's been such a... Uh, just a revolutionary book in, in Mormon literature. So, if this quote came out before this book was published, I think we can forgive perhaps Bob Witt uh, for not knowing this, not knowing this information. If it came out after it was published, well, we may still be able to forgive him because he may not have known of its publication, and yet if someone's going to be, take it upon themselves to make such overwhelming assertions, I think that it behooves them to make sure of the facts before they do it. Larry. Does he say who is quoting in the track? Yes, he does. And this is the damnable part of it. He is quoting this book. He is quoting John Sorensen from the introduction to this book. And he changed it a little bit. But notice what he left out at the beginning, the first two words at the beginning of what John wrote here. Until recently, after 150 years since the Nephite record was first published by Joseph Smith, etc., we hadn't been able to do this. We hadn't been able to do this. He also changes the last line a little bit. Uh, he's, uh, Bob Witt says, quotes him as saying, uh, it's been a sealed book to us because we have been incapable of placing it in a specific setting. John Sorensen says, in many respects, the Book of Mormon remains a sealed book to us because we have failed to do the work necessary to place it in its setting. And yet this is in the preface where John Sorensen now goes forth and shows that all that has changed. Bob Witt has no excuse. He cannot be thought that he didn't know about it. He's quoting from the very book that gives us all this information. So once again, this proves my uh, moral or code or motto in life, which is never trust an anti-Mormon. Yes? You're saying that the track actually references to that book? As the, as Professor John L. Sorensen, An Ancient American Setting for the Book of Mormon, page 3. But can't you imagine the type of people who would do this kind of thing? Sitting back in their little huddled masses, patting each other on the back and giggling delightfully over this kind of trick. And that's all it is, is a trick, and they know it's a trick. And yet they do it, to pull the wool over people's eyes. I remember, once not too long ago, I felt, this isn't even, haven't even gotten into the information I want to get into today, but we were teaching a friend of my wife's, before she was my wife, uh, her name was, uh, what was her name? Starts with a B, right? Betsy, right. And we were over there talking to her, and she'd come into some anti-Mormon literature about some claim against Joseph Smith. And at this point, I had never heard this claim before, though it seemed a little bit strange to my ears. And I, and she read it to me out of this book, and I said, well, first off, I wouldn't be so sure they're telling the truth. And her response to that was what I think most people's response to be, would be who read this stuff without knowing the kind of people who write it. Well, you come on, they're... If they're going to write it down, it's because it's true. They're not going to be trying to deliberately tell lies, was her response. And the fact is that they do deliberately tell lies, and in most cases, they get away with it. Other claims made against Joseph Smith that I'd like to address today. First off is Joseph Smith and magic. Now, this claim has come up a great deal uh, recently. Uh, it's been there for quite a while, but... A great deal of emphasis has been placed on it in the past few years. Uh, with Joseph Smith's relationship to money digging or gold digging, that type of activity. To us, that sounds, you know, very normal. That a person might go out and dig, dig after treasure. But actually, what it meant at the time was that a person would go out and use, uh, say, perhaps a, what he described it as, a stick of hazel and split it down the, the center halfway and then go walking around using it sort of like a divining rod for water, except that when it gets near treasure, 
the two split halves would, are supposed to pull together, and that will help you know where buried treasure is. So this is something that isn't just digging for money, but it's using what might be called folk magic or white magic. It might be termed that in order to find money. Now, first off, this is not something that was ever covered up by Joseph Smith. He admitted it freely. As a matter of fact, in teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, it, he replied to one of the questions that was most asked him, did, did you ever participate in money digging? And he said, yes, I did, but I gave it up as it wasn't very profitable. And then he goes on to the next question. Um, also, this money digging, well, scratch that. Uh, there are a few other things, though, that Joseph Smith did that uh, opponents of the church look on as being some kind of folk magic. For instance, uh, the seer stone, glass looking. Saying so, one of his neighbors felt that he had the power, and so he hired Joseph Smith to do digging at one point in his life. Right. And, uh, that didn't even involve magic. His neighbor was and people practiced it, and it wasn't something that was generally frowned upon at the time. It was something that was quite common and quite acceptable. Uh, interestingly enough, the, a recent book out on the history of the church uh, by Arrington, uh, the early, the beginnings of Mormonism is what it's called, talks about this, and it shows how Joseph Smith did practice this as a youth, but later on as his prophetic calling began to be more and more uh, clear to him, that he tried to put it behind him. And other people would come to him, including members of his family, one time his father, and want him to do this type of thing. He would say, no, no, I don't want to do that anymore. I'm trying to put that behind me. And so it appears to be something that he did in his youth at any rate, and not something that he carried on into his career as a, as a leader of the church. But uh, there's also the glass-looking uh, types of uh, statements using a seer stone, which would be called a peach stone, and these other uh, types of statements. Also just the fact that he claimed to use the urine and thummim in order to have truth revealed which sounds very similar to the types of folk magic they had then using peep stones, you know, to look into a stone and to get information out. Well, first off, dealing with the urine thummim, uh, Numbers 27-21 and 1 Samuel 28-6 are two references from the Old Testament showing that the urine thummim was used then in order to make the will of God known to the people. So there, this physical object, urine and thummim, was used in order to understand God's will. Now, the definition of magic versus religion is very important here, because magic, at least recently, has come to be something that uh, it's a type of way of determining either God's will or just the future through physical means, through a physical object, through a rock, through a, through a rod, like through that stick like I'm talking about, right? Through a physical way. And other people uh, generally think that... Uh, excuse me, religion, however, is something that comes about without using any physical things. You just sort of pray, God gives you the answer, there's nothing physical there that you're using. This is not, however, the, uh, the definition that was used anciently, and which should still be enforced today, which is simply that religion is something that comes from God. And magic is something that doesn't come from God. It doesn't make any difference what you use, if you use something physical, if you don't use anything physical, the defining point is the source of the information. Now, there are many examples of magic. Uh, if we use that first definition, that magic is something physical, there's many examples of that type of magic that we can find in the Bible. First off, uh, something called the divine name of power. The divine name of power. This is something that goes back to the very beginning, the origins of magic, something that's so fundamental to magic as to be inseparable from it. And yet it's become so much a part of today's Christianity that we usually don't think about it. We're just so used to it. And what I mean by that is the name of Jesus Christ, for example. Acts 4.12 states that there's no other name given by which we can be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. In this name, there is power. In this name, there is to say magic. There is power in that name. And this is something that goes back, as I said, to the beginning of uh, magic as we would understand it. Magic that's uh, not necessarily of God. For instance, if you're going to conjure up a demon, and I know that many of you do this quite often, if you're going to conjure up a demon, of course that will be taken, taken out of context, and we can count on that coming out in the next anti-Mormon uh, track. However, I am speaking uh, in jest. <laughs> When you uh, conjure a demon, what is the one thing that you have to know in order to do that? Its name. 
You have to know the name. Exactly. That is the one piece of information that you cannot do without is the name in order to conjure up. Because to know the name gives you power over the demon, according to uh, magic tradition. Let's go on now. That's the divine name of power. Second one, very interesting, cup divination. Using a cup in order to divine the future. And we find that it wasn't Joseph Smith who did that, but it was Joseph of old who did that. We find that in Genesis 44. Very interesting reference. You can skip right by it if you're not aware of it. 44, verse 2. And he's talking to his stewards as he's arranging to return, uh, arranges to stop the return of his brethren to Canaan. He says, It's a sack's mouth of the youngest and his corn money. And he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. Then we go on to verse 5. And Joseph, speaking about the cup, says, Is not this it? Oh, excuse me, this is his steward talking about the cup. Is not this it in which my Lord drinks, and whereby indeed he divines? Ye have done evil in so doing. So here a steward identifies this cup as a, something that not only did Joseph drink from, but he divined by it. I don't know how he did it. I don't know if it had to do with looking into it and seeing something in it, which would be an interesting parallel in itself. But in it, at any rate, Joseph uses cup to divine. Casting of lots is another one. We read about that many times in the Old Testament. Let me give you three references. Leviticus 16, 8 through 10. 1 Chronicles 24, 5 and 25. So verses 5. No, excuse me. 1 Chronicles 24, verse 5. 1 Chronicles 25, verse 8. And 1 Chronicles 26, verse 13. The only one that I'll talk about at any length is the one that we find in the New Testament. Acts 2, 24 through 26. Here we're out of the Old Testament, we're clear up into the New Testament. And when the apostles lose Judas, they have to pick another one to take the place. We can hardly think of any more sacred choice that has to be made. What do they do in order to choose a new apostle? They cast lots. Now this doesn't mean they took a vote. This means they took physical lots, cast them out, and expected God's will to be manifest from the way that the lots arranged themselves. And as we find out, they landed on Matthias out of the two who were up for candidacy in the apostleship. So the apostles of Christ found nothing incongruent with using a physical means in order to... That would be considered magic and blasphemy, at least by uh, these opponents of the church. Healing. Many types of healing in the Bible are magical in nature. If we're still using the term used through physical means, all right? Sympathetic magic is a type of magic whereby a healing is caused by using a physical object. And I'm not talking about an injection or something like that. I'm talking about a physical object that produces that healing. Let me give you a few instances. You may already be thinking of them in your mind. Numbers 21, verse 9. We have an example of people being able to be healed from a serpent's bite if they just look at a brazen serpent that Moses made and raised up on a rod. That is a type of sympathetic magic. 2 Kings 13, verse 21. Here we have a dead man being lowered down into this uh, pit or sepulcher or something, and he lands on something. He lands on Elisha's bones. And the power in those bones is such that even though Elisha is dead, it raises the man back to life according to the biblical account. These are types of sympathetic magic. Christ's healings, if we go up into the New Testament, uses sympathetic magic. And not only does it use sympathetic magic, I'm not saying all do, but the most famous accounts do. Not only does it use sympathetic magic, but Christ was using means of healing people that in that day were considered folk magic. He was using means that were considered folk magic. Let me give you three examples. Mark 8, verse 23, and John 9, verses 6 and 7, speaks of Christ healing the blindness of men. And you recall how he did it? Go ahead. Right, he spit in some mud, or he just spit, I think it depends on the account, and he put it on their eyes, and then said, you will see. Why did he need the mud for, you know? We might start coming up with answers, but the important thing is, if you come up with answers to that, you do well to apply it just as equally to Joseph Smith and his associates in the early history of the church. This is something, of course, that Mormon critics are not wont to do. Another one is in Mark 7, verse 33, where he heals a person of deafness. Do you recall what he did there? 
Yeah, he stuck his fingers right in his ears. And then he popped them or pulled them out at any rate in order to heal him. Mark 7.34 and Mark 5.41 give references to Christ's recitation of foreign words. Words in a different language. When he uh, raised someone from the dead or brought about a healing instance. All three of these are common means of folk magic in his day. And this is precisely the reason why the Pharisees accused him of doing these miracles, not by God's power, but by the power of Satan. They said, you don't do this, Beelzebub has done this, working through you. And that is exactly the type of allegation that is being made against Joseph Smith today. As a matter of fact, most people, when they're ignorant of the gospel, and yet they're still uh, antagonistic toward it, say Joseph Smith made it up. He did all these things on his own. Then, if they continue their studies and continue their antagonism, they grow to the point where they understand that it is impossible that he did it on his own. Absolutely impossible. And therefore, for them, the only other alternative is that he did it by the power of Satan. And that is exactly the conclusion that they knew of his miracles. They knew that he couldn't be of God. And so he had to be of Satan. Two other quick references to uh, believers in what would we, w- we would consider to be unscientific folk magic in the uh, Old Testament were uh, in Genesis 30, verses 14 through 15, where, uh, let me see, this would be uh, Jacob's wives, I believe, got some mandrake root and ate it, partook of it, in order to increase their fertility. Now, that doesn't work. That's what we would call superstition. That's what we would call folk magic. And yet the biblical record tells us in this instance it did work. I don't know. You tell me. We read in Genesis 30, verses 37 through 39, that Jacob thought that if he took some rods, just, you know, rods of a tree or something, branches, and made them speckled and spotted by stripping off bark, and if he put those in front of cows when they were conceiving, that the fact that they were looking at those rods would have an effect upon their offspring and give them speckled and spotted calves. Now, we know that's not true. We know that's not scientific. We know that's superstition. We know that's folk magic. And yet he did it. He certainly was a great prophet. This does not uh, take away from his prophetic calling in my eyes at all. And of course, but then again, the biblical record tells him that for him it worked. I don't know. You tell me. Was it the folk? Okay, they were heterozygous. You have it right here. Was it the folk magic that did it? I don't know. Was it God working through the folk magic that did it? I think that's more likely. The first thing that we can see immediately is we have a case of a double standard of interpretation. If Joseph Smith does it, no, he's a damnable child and he's a false prophet. If these individuals do it in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that's okay. That's okay. And the reason for this is because they are not judging the prophet by the magic. They are judging the magic by the prophet. Their argument that they say is, because Joseph Smith practiced magic, he's a false prophet. That's not what they mean. What they are saying is that because we already know that Joseph Smith was a false prophet, what he practiced was magic and not of God. And because we know that these individuals in the Bible were true prophets, what they practiced was not magic, but it was of God. They are arguing from their conclusion, perhaps the stupidest thing you can do, and yet it's done all the time, and it is done here. In closing on this subject, so I can get on to my other uh, accusations against Joseph Smith, perhaps the classic example in the Bible where the force of God meets and the force of Satan meets is found in the book of Exodus. And it's the classic case of Moses and Aaron versus Jonas and Jambres. Can anybody tell me who Jonas and Jambres are real quick? Good. They were Pharaoh's magicians in Pharaoh's court. And uh, Moses came up and by the power of God cast down his serpent and it, excuse me, cast down his rod, his staff, and it changed into a serpent. Now that sounds kind of fishy if you think about it now, but it did. And God told him to, and that was going to be a sign to Pharaoh. And then what did Pharaoh's magicians do? They did exactly the same thing. 
Now I ask you, and I ask any Mormon critic out there, which one was of God, and which one was magic? You can't tell by looking at them. They did the exact same thing. The only way you can tell which one is of God is because you already know that Moses is a prophet, and you believe in his prophet, prophetic calling, and you already believe or know that Jonathan John Brees were magicians. And the reason you know that is because the Bible is nice enough to tell you right out. Jonathan John Brees, the magicians, uh, Moses, the prophet. So the, the moral here is that it's not what is done or how it's done. It's the source from which it comes. That has always been the test of what is religion against what is magic. It is the source from which it comes. It is important to note here that never at any time did Joseph Smith claim for any of these things that he did that it was coming from a source other than God. He never claimed it was a Satan. He never claimed it was folk magic, for that matter. He always claimed that his source was God. Let's go ahead now. I need to get through uh, three other attacks on Joseph Smith, three other claims against Joseph Smith. Actually, there's four, excuse me, four other claims against Joseph Smith that I want to cover before the class time is over. These are the four top claims against Joseph Smith, along with this magic deal. And I want to give you the ones that are most commonly used so that uh, you'll be prepared for them in the most common situations. Yeah. One thing you need to really be careful about is the Hoffman letters and their influence on some doctrines in a church. Mm -hmm. Be careful of people quoting the Hoffman letters as fact. It really helps to find out what he wrote now so that you can say, well, they were forged. It absolutely does. And of course, when you're saying the Hoffman letters, you mean the one dealing with the Salamander. The Salamander is a big one. He, he forged so much. He did. And uh, if I can just give you another example, if I can find it here, maybe I can't, and if I can't real fast, I'll just go on. But uh, one of them was quoted in here, in one of these uh, pamphlets. Here it is, uh, number nine here, in this uh, one called The Prophets Have Spoken. This is by Wally Tope. And this is the one where he quotes from the blessing that Joseph gave to his son, Joseph Smith III, saying that he would be his successor to the president's presidency of the high priesthood, a seer, revelator, and a prophet unto the church, etc. And he gave that blessing to his son. And then people will use this and say, well, look, he didn't. He's a, he became president of this other church, the organized church. This is one, as Colina's brought up, this is one of the Hoffman letters that was forged and was admitted by the person who forged it to be a forgery. So if anyone brings that up, you should dismiss that out of hand. Don't spend your time uh, talking about it because it doesn't make any difference it being a forgery. Thank you. First one I want to address now, uh, these personal attacks on Joseph Smith, the, the first of the last four anyway, deals with uh, moon men. Moon men. People on the moon. Let me quote you here from this same uh, track, The Prophets Have Spoken by Wally Tope. It's on the last page here. This is what it says. It's quoting, Nearly all the great discoveries of men in the last half century have, in one way or another, either directly or indirectly, contributed to prove Joseph Smith to be a prophet. As far back as 1837, I know, this is Oliver B. Huntington speaking, as far back as 1837, I know that he said the moon was inhabited by men and women the same as this earth and that they live to a, to a greater age than we do, that they live generally to near the age of a thousand years. He described the men as, an, as averaging near six feet in height and dressing quite uniformly in something near the Quaker style. Have you ever heard anything so outlandish in your life, other than the anti-Mormon things I've been talking about? But have you ever heard anything as outlandish as this? And this is why anti-Mormons are quick to seize on this and use it. To say Joseph Smith believed outlandish things, why are you going to believe anything else he said? The quote from this, which this person is good enough to give to us, is the Young Woman's Journal, a publication by the church. The author who wrote it, Oliver B. Huntington, gives the reference, volume 3, page 263, and he's also good enough to give, give us the year. 1892. 1892 this is being written down. If Oliver B. Huntington was remembering this, he was 11 years old in 1837 at the time he says he heard this statement, and by this time in 1892 would have passed since that time. This is a case of Latter-day Saint pseudepigrapha. Let me tell you what I mean by pseudepigrapha, uh, just if you don't already know. 
Pseudepigrapha is a name, technical name, given to writings that usually deal with uh, things like the Bible. And what it's done is a person comes along a long time after a prophet's written, writes down some things, and then he attributes them to that prophet. Okay? There's tons of books like that. You don't find them generally. Uh, I don't know that you find any of them in the Bible, because they've kind of been eschewed, because they realize that they're false works. <clears throat> Excuse me. Most of these people who write the pseudepigrapha aren't enemies of the church. What they are is people who love the church and they want to give it more power and appeal through writing things later and attributing them back to the person uh, to who was supposed to have originally done this. I'm submitting to you that this is exactly what happened here. I want to give you an example of some famous pseudepigrapha, which has to deal with the childhood years of Jesus Christ. There's a big gap there in the biblical record. You know, you don't know anything about his childhood. People, centuries later, used that. And they wrote incidents about his childhood, which they attributed to him. And they did it in all good faith, because they thought it would make Jesus Christ seem greater. And yet, one of the most common stories that was written, or the most famous stories, was that once Christ was uh, playing in the sand, you know, he was a little kid, and some two guys came up to him and started bullying him. And so Christ made a lion, or two lions, depending on the account, out of sand. He molded it out of sand like he would at the beach. He touched them, they came to life, and they devoured the two boys who had been bullying him. And we look at that and we say, that's fantastic, that's, that's ludicrous, that's outrageous. There's nothing like that, even hinted at that, in, in the Gospels that we have, that Christ did anything that outrageous. And that's been sort of put aside. But the person who wrote it didn't do it meanly. He did it because he felt it helped strengthen Christ's claim to be the Savior in his power. This, doubtless, is what Oliver B. Huntington was doing here. He felt that at this time, he could help Joseph Smith by attributing the statement to him. Because notice how he says it. He is saying this not to discredit Joseph Smith. He is trying to say this to boost Joseph Smith as a prophet. Because he felt in 1892 that science was saying that, yeah, the moon is inhabited. So he's looking back and saying, Joseph Smith said this in 1837. And then he gives us all the details with Quaker clothing, a thousand years old, six feet in height. All these amazing details. And that's what he said. Remember, he says, Nearly all the great discoveries of men in the last half century have in one way or another, either directly or indirectly, contributed to prove Joseph Smith to be a prophet. And then he goes on to quote this. I'm submitting to you that, though well-intentioned, he attributed something to Joseph Smith that Joseph Smith never said. Fifty-five years later, he would have been 11 years old at the time, and so it's very difficult for me to imagine that he could remember that, they could remember it correctly. You wanted to say something? As a secular example, Parson Weems made up the cherry tree story for Jordan. Uh, uh, really? He wanted a good story, and so he made it up from fiction. So you're saying that, in a secular example, that never happened to George Washington, but somebody's writing about him, so attributed it back to help show that he was an honest, honest as a child. That's another good example. Now, if that story had happened, okay, if that story happened and we grew up to find out, say, that, that now in the scientific age that cherry trees can't be chopped down, okay, it's a scientific impossibility for cherry trees to be chopped down for some reason or another, or they didn't have axes back then that could do it, we would say, wait a second, was George Washington lying about this? You know? We'd say, what's going on here? In the same way, we'd come up in the scientific quote-unquote age to say, the moon is not inhabited. We look back, and anti-Mormon critics are very eager to say, well, was Joseph Smith lying about this? But if you look into it a little bit closer, like you would have to, if you wanted to be honest, you would find that George Washington didn't say that. That was said about him many years later. And then you would start to double-think on yourself and say, wait a second, this isn't a direct source. This is something that someone else said many years later. It has to be significant, to me it is anyway, that there is no account contemporary with Joseph Smith, either in his handwriting or in someone else's, that ever makes any such claim of teaching that the moon was inhabited. If we had that, or if the anti-Mormons had that, then we might have to do a little more talking about it. But since they don't, and since it's unlikely they will come up, because of the situation in which this quote came up, long after Joseph Smith's death, and for the, the purpose that we've talked about, we'll go on to something else now. Do you want to say something, Brent? Okay. The next one has to do... with a quote 
from this pamphlet, the one unmasking the myths of Mormonism. You go to page three, it has this to say, quoting Joseph Smith. I have more to boast of than ever any man had. No, that's not the one I want to get to. I'm sorry, that's the next one. I have to go one down now. This is the one we're going to deal with now. God made Aaron to be the mouthpiece for the children of Israel, and he will make me to be God to you in his stead, and the elders to be mouth for me, and if you don't like it, you must lump it. Ever heard that before? Never? This is one of the top three. One of the top three things used against the church. Quoting Joseph Smith, in other words, you know, to, to say this is the kind of guy Joseph Smith was. This is the guy you're trusting your salvation to. This comes from uh, History of the Church. All three of these last things we'll be talking about come from History of the Church, Volume 6. And I went ahead and made copies of them so I could uh, mark on them without getting in trouble with Brother Sill. But here's where he says, he says, uh, right here, God made Aaron to be the mouthpiece for the children of Israel, and he will make me be God to you in his stead, and the others to be mouth for me, and if you don't like it, you must lump it. First off, there is a footnote here in the history of the church. Now, here's where the asterisk is for the footnote on the bottom line, and here's where the footnote is. It's hard to believe you could miss that footnote if you're reading it from the history of the church. And what this does is it references this quote to two scriptures in the Bible to which Joseph Smith was making allusion in the first place. Here's what the footnote says. The scripture alluded to in the text is as follows. Moses pleaded to be excused from the appointment to deliver Israel on the plea that he was not eloquent. We all know the story, right? Whereupon the Lord said, Is not Aaron the Levite thy brother? I know that he can speak well. And also, behold, he comes forth to meet thee. And when he sees thee, he will be glad in his heart. And thou shalt speak unto him and put words in his mouth. And he shall be thy spokesman unto the people. He shall be to thee instead of a mouth. And thou shalt be to him instead of God. Unquote. That's Exodus 4, verses 14 through 16. There's another uh, reference in the, in the Old Testament that deals with the same type of situation. Quote, and this is also referred to in the, uh, the footnote, which was not alluded to in this pamphlet. And the Lord said unto Moses, See, I have made thee a god to Pharaoh, and Aaron thy brother shall be thy prophet. The same type of relationship. Let me explain exactly what's being talked about there in the Bible. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't give you the reference, did I? That's Exodus 7, verse 1. Volume 6, pages 319 and 320. Thank you very much. I I do mean to give that information. Keep me honest. What is being talked about here is simply the relationship. God generally speaks to his prophet, one person, who then speaks to the people generally, right? We know that. That's the way it's always been. That's the way it is now, at least in our church. What God is saying here to Moses is, we're going to change that a little bit. Now, you be the person who's in the relationship of God, In other words, you speak to Aaron, the one who speaks to everybody for you. He's not saying you're going to be God. He's not saying you're equal to me. He's just saying you're going to be in the role of God here. Okay? Because you're going to speak to Aaron. He's going to be like your prophet. And then he speaks to everybody else. That's what he says in the second one, too. He says, I'm going to make you, Moses, God to Pharaoh. And Aaron's going to be your spokesperson. Or, in other words, your prophet. And that's all it's talking about. In other words, instead of giving the burden on Moses to speak to everybody... He's going to let Moses give it to one person, Aaron, his brother, and Aaron's going to speak to everybody for him. Simple, right? This is exactly what Joseph Smith is referring to, and he's using this quote, uh, excuse me, this allusion to these uh, scriptures in perfect context. Now, when I read this to you, by itself, that quote from this anti-Mormon pamphlet, it sounds like Joseph Smith is being a demagogue, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Do you want to know the context for this? This is the context. Please check it out for yourself. He is talking to these people. This is in 1844. I imagine it's in Nauvoo. He's talking to a lot of people. He has grown tired of speaking. He cannot go on anymore. He's too tired. His voice is worn out. And what he says now is this, and I will quote, I shall leave my brethren to enlarge on this subject. He's been talking about America being Zion in the address. I'll leave them to enlarge on the subject. It is my duty to teach the doctrine. I would teach it more fully. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. God is not willing to let me gratify you, but I must teach the elders, and they should teach you. God made Aaron to be the mouthpiece for the children of Israel, and he will make me be God to you in his stead. 
and the elders to be mouth for me. And if you don't like it, you must lump it. And lump it simply means to tolerate it. You have to tolerate it. Basically what it means is it doesn't matter if you like it or not, I can't go on. You can't get blood out of a turnip. So you either like it or you're going to have to just go along with it. He then goes on to say, I have been giving Elder Adams instructions and some principles to speak to you. And if he makes a mistake, I will get up and correct him. All that Joseph Smith is doing is turning the meeting over to the other elders so that they can teach the people. And making a perfectly correct allusion to uh, Genesis and Exodus where the same thing was done with Moses and Aaron. That's all that that is. Next, I'll quote again from this uh, pamphlet, the one that I began to quote to you at all, quote to you uh, before the other one. This has to deal with boasting. Joseph Smith, quoting from History of the Church, Volume 6, pages 408 and 409. Let me get that out at the beginning. I have more to boast of than ever any man had. I am the only man that has ever been able to keep a whole church together since the days of Adam. A large majority of the whole have stood by me. Neither Paul, John, Peter, nor Jesus ever did it. And that's the part that really rankles people. Nor Jesus ever did it. And that's why I deny Talis here. I boast that no man ever did a work such as I. The followers of Jesus ran away from him, but the Latter-day Saints never ran away from me yet. And that's the end of the quote here. First, I'd like to ask the question, did Joseph Smith do that which Jesus had not done? Yes, he did. That is the simple answer, at least for those of us who accept him as a prophet and accept the fact that, yeah, he restored the church and it hung around. It didn't get, uh, his followers didn't run away from him. Is it blasphemy then to say so? No, it's not. Unless Jesus Christ was a liar. And what I mean by that is, if we open up to John chapter 14 and verse 12, we find Christ saying this about his disciples. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believes on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do. Christ saying specifically that his disciples, those who believe on him, would be able to do greater works than Christ himself did. Now, I certainly don't mean this to intend that anyone could do a greater work in the area of salvation and the atonement of mankind. And that's not what Joseph Smith was saying either. He was simply saying that he had been able to hold the church together, whereas no one else had been able to do it since the days of Adam. The second part of this that gets to people is that Joseph Smith is boasting. He says, I'm boasting. I have more to boast of than any other man. And uh, I boast that no man ever did a work such as I. And people are saying, well, he's boasting. What kind of a prophet would boast? To understand this more fully, we need to go to the context found in the history of the church, as I said, beginning on page 408. At the very beginning of this discourse, Joseph Smith did something that was quite common at the time. It was quite common then to read a passage of scripture and then go into your discourse, sort of the commentary on the scripture as opposed to like reading scriptures all the way through it like we kind of do today. They would just read a passage first and then comment on it later. President Joseph Smith, it's stated here in the history of the church, read the 11th chapter, 2 Corinthians. Do you know what that's talking about? That's where Paul boasts. 2 Corinthians, chapter 11, we find such statements as these. In verse 17, that which I speak, now, let me see, start with verse 16. I say again, let no man think me a fool, if otherwise yet as a fool receive me, that I may boast myself a little. That which I speak, I speak it not after the Lord, but as it were foolishly in his confidence of boasting. Seeing that many glory, and that's a synonym for boast, seeing that many glory or boast after the flesh, I will glory also. And then he goes on to talk about, to actually boast. I um, says, I speak as concerning reproach, as though we had been weak, albeit whereinsoever any is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. He's throwing that in there. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, stripes, you know, being whipped, in prisons more frequent, in deaths often, of the Jews five times received I forty stripes, save one. Three times was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned, three times I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeyings often in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, 
in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Here Paul is boasting his head off. And he says, I'm boasting. That is the context in which Joseph Smith is making this statement. Now, if we understand why Paul was boasting, first off, let me say this before I go on. Here we have another example of double standard of interpretation. It's okay for Paul to boast, but if Joseph Smith does it, away with him, crucify him, for he is a false prophet. That is the first thing that we need to understand. And that is where I think we should make our initial defense. If you're going to apply that standard to Joseph Smith, let's be fair and do it to Paul too. However, as Latter-day Saints, we generally like to understand subjects. And so let's go into it, see why Paul was boasting, and when we see why he was doing this, we will see that Joseph Smith was doing it for the exact same reason, because he was in the same situation that Paul was in at this time. 2 Corinthians was written to the group in Corinth because, or at least in main part because, there was a sector of them that had drawn off and away from the church and were setting themselves up to be apostles were setting themselves up to be prophets of God and to lead the people. And the people weren't doing that much about it. They were kind of submitting to it, saying, okay, we'll follow them. You're familiar with this phrase, I know, this passage. Uh, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ, as angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. We've all heard that, and usually I hear it about the Mormon church. But Paul is talking here about the people in Corinth who are setting themselves up to be prophets and apostles. That's who he's talking about. And that's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 12 through 15, what I just read. Those people, those false apostles in the Corinthian church, were setting themselves up to be big people, apostles, and they were boasting. In other words, they were saying, look, we do this, we do this, we do this, we do that. Therefore, you should believe us. And Paul felt, apparently, that the only way he could combat that with this kind of apathetic ward or congregation there in Corinth was to let them know of the things that he had done. To let them know how he compared. In other words, basically, to remind them that he was superior to these other people there who were pretending to be apostles. And he knew perfectly well that the only way he could do that was to come off sounding like a braggart. How else can you do that? Timothy, write this letter for me. Talk about me good. No. He did it himself, but he knew he'd sound like a, like a braggart, and that's why he keeps saying, I speak as a fool. Because when he's saying, I speak as a fool, every time he says that, he's saying, first off, I'm not really boasting. I'm just doing it like I'm a fool. And the other thing is, he's calling those other people who are boasting real fools. That's what he's doing. And that's why he's throwing this queer expression, I speak as a fool. Um, as a matter of fact, let me just read, uh, this goes like from verse 10, I mean chapter 10, all the way through chapter 12, this whole stream of boasting on the part of Paul. In chapter 10, verse 12, he makes it more clear what he's doing. I think I've covered it, but I want to read it for you. For we dare not make ourselves of the number, which means that number of people who've separated themselves, you'll get that from the context, or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. Talking about those people commending themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. He also says, Remember when I read, seeing that many glory after the flesh, I will glory also? That's who he's talking about, the many who glory after the flesh. At any rate, I'd encourage you to read this whole passage so that you can understand the context and what it means. In fact, the one that we use, the scripture that we use in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2-4 through 4, about the third heaven, you remember that, right? Come on. Okay. Where it says, I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago, uh, such a one caught up to the third heaven, and I knew such a man, how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Who is that man? This is just a point of interest. That's Paul. He's talking about himself. And here in 5, when you understand that, when you understand the context, you can understand his sarcastic response here in verse 5. Of such a one, that man who did all these, got these great visions, of such a one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory but in my infirmities. These people in Corinth knew about this vision he had. This is the exact same thing as if Joseph Smith, here in this passage, which he didn't say, if he said, 
You know, I'm not going to boast of myself, but I knew this guy who's 14 years old had a visit from God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. I boast about him, but I'm not going to boast about myself. That's exactly what, what Paul is saying here. The equivalent, in other words, of what Paul is saying here. He's going at this in all sorts of different ways, and this is precisely the situation in which Joseph Smith found himself. I'll have to get out. But this is exactly the situation. This was in May of 1844. He was in Nauvoo. I trust you all know the type of situation that was prevalent in Abu at the time. A group of dissenters had separated themselves from the church and were setting themselves up as apostles and prophets. It is exactly the same situation that Paul faced. Once again, Joseph Smith is drawing on the scriptures perfectly. As a matter of fact, here it says in the history of the church before the address, it says, Address of the prophet, his testimony against the dissenters at Nauvoo. And later on, a little bit, just a few lines down, he says, As Paul boasted, I have suffered more than Paul did. He's relating it directly to what Paul said. And then he goes on to say that I have more to boast of than ever any man had, etc. And I boast that, that no man ever did such a work as I. Ask yourselves this question, or ask someone else this question, if they should ever bring this up. Doesn't this sound peculiar to you that either Paul or Joseph Smith, if they were really boasting, would say, I boast? Boasters don't say I boast. They just do it. They don't say, I brag, they just do it. And yet, both Paul and Joseph Smith are saying it, making it clear that they have a, some other meaning in mind. I trust by now it's clear what Joseph Smith's meaning was and why he kept saying, I boast this and I boast that. Basically, because he had just read the second, the 11th chapter of 2 Corinthians and he was referring it directly to what Paul said, which was in exactly the same situation. The last one we deal with today comes from this green pamphlet, The Prophets Have Spoken. I think I've read from this before. And indeed, here under Joseph Smith's statements that they find offensive, 1, 2, and 3 are exactly the three last things I just talked to you about, all from volume 6 of the church. They're number 1, number 2, and number 3 in this pamphlet. That's the order. And they are indeed the most common brought against Joseph Smith. And this is what he says. This is found from History of the Church, volume 6, page 78. Joseph Smith speaking. The whole earth shall bear me witness that I, like the towering rock in the midst of the ocean which has withstood the mighty surges of the warring waves for centuries, am impregnable. I combat the errors of ages. I meet the violence of mobs. I cope with illegal proceedings from executive authority. I cut the Gordian knot of powers, and I solve mathematical problems of universities with truth, diamond truth, and God is my right-hand man." Unquote. The fact that Joseph Smith said that God is his right-hand man is what gets people under the skin. Because when we think of, we think of our chief helper, but someone who is still inferior to us, don't we? That's what a right-hand man is. And if this were taken out of context, we might indeed think that Joseph Smith was considering himself superior to God. But if we look at it in context, in the history of the church, we find something very, very Interesting. Something that the anti-Mormons didn't want to tell us, understandably, because it would have destroyed their position. Once again, we have a footnote that's ignored, by the way. Here's where the, the quote is. Here's the asterisk on the page, and here's the footnote uh, dealing with the thing, right-hand man. It says, not in the blasphemous sense attributed to him by some anti-Mormon writers, namely that God was subordinate to him, his right-hand man, but in the sense of the passage near the close of his address to the Green Mountain Boys in this chapter, Quote, and Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is my great counselor, unquote, reverently said. So let's note again, the footnote was ignored. If we look at the context, we find even greater insight into what Joseph Smith was talking about. This was not an address. This was a letter. It was a reply to a letter that had been sent to him by a gentleman named James Arlington Bennett. Now, James, and that letter is right here in the history of the church, too. It's not a mystery what was in it. It's right here, right before Joseph Smith's response, which is where you would expect to find it. Five important things about James Arlington Bennett's letter. First off, he says he wants to be Joseph Smith's friend. I quote you from the letter. Quote, I am capable of being a most undeviating friend, unquote. Number two, he did not believe in Joseph Smith, that he was a prophet. As a matter of fact, he really didn't even believe in God. All right? He didn't believe in anyone. And that's found here. I don't have time to read that to you now. But you can read it for yourself, if you wish. I would encourage you to. 
Uh, and yet he recognized Joseph Smith as a great man and a powerful man, and that's why he wrote him a letter. That's why he was interested in talking to him. Number three, James Bennett wanted Joseph Smith's influence over the Mormons in their vote to get him, Bennett, into office as governor of Illinois. This is what he says. In short, I expect to be yet through your influence governor of the state of Illinois, unquote. Number four, he wanted Joseph Smith to be quiet about his affiliation, about Bennett's affiliation with the Mormons. Why? Because if the people knew that he was associated with the Mormons, they wouldn't vote for him. Only the Mormons would. That wasn't enough to get all the vote. He wanted to get the vote of the Mormons and the vote of everyone else, so he would be sure to be governor. So he didn't want these other non-Mormons to know he was associating with the Mormons. He says, he's trying to sell some land, quote, and therefore, should I be compelled to announce in this quarter that I have no connection with the Nauvoo Legion, you will, of course, remain silent, as I shall do it in such a way as will make all things right. He was an officer in the Nauvoo Legion. So he's saying, look, if I lie to him and tell him I don't have any connection with the Nauvoo Legion, don't rat on me. I'll do it so it's, everything's okay. And then he talks about uh, an article that was printed that, to that uh, showed he was an officer. I may yet run for a high office in your state when you would be sure of my best services in your behalf. Therefore, a known connection with you would be against our mutual interest. It can be shown that a commission in the League was a Herald hoax, an article published in the Herald saying that he had a commission in the Legion. It can be shown that a commission in the Legion was a Herald hoax, coined for the fun of it by me, as it is not believed even now by the people. Once again, saying, I have no connection with the Mormons. Everybody non-Mormon vote for me, and Joseph Smith on the slide, you get the Mormons to vote for me. I'll be governor, and I'll give you all kinds of favors. This is perhaps the most important point, number five. He compares Joseph Smith to Muhammad, that great prophet of Islam. And he says, you're like, he basically says, you are like Muhammad. But you must remember that Muhammad didn't do it all himself. Muhammad had his right-hand man. That's what he says. Let me quote. I say, therefore, he's already said, I don't believe you're a prophet. I believe you're a great man. I say, therefore, go ahead. You have my wishes. You know, Muhammad had his right-hand man. Unquote. Joseph Smith, in responding, I think it's already becoming very clear to you exactly what he's saying when he responds indignantly to this letter. He says this, for one point, he, he says that uh, Muhammad was not the only person who had his right-hand man in history. Caesar did, too, and his name was Brutus. And this is what Joseph Smith says. Your good wishes to go ahead, coupled with Muhammad and the right-hand man, are rather more vain than virtuous. Why, sir, Caesar had his right-hand Brutus, who was his left-hand assassin. Not, however, applying the allusion to you. Ha <laughs> ha. All right. September I received from heaven to boost a man into power through the aid of my friends. May my power cease like the strength of Samson when he was shorn of his locks while asleep in the lap of Delilah. And finally, at the, toward the end, this is how he concludes it. I combat the error of ages. I meet the violence of mobs. I cope with the legal proceedings from executive authority. I cut the Gordian knot of powers, and I solve mathematical problems of universities with truth diamond truth, and God is my right-hand man. That's how it was written. That's what it means. He was not placing himself above God. He was placing God above James Arlington Bennett. So then, in summary, James Arlington Bennett wanted Joseph Smith's influence so that he, Bennett, could become governor of Illinois, from which post, as governor, James Arlington Bennett was promising to do favors for the saints and benefit them through his post as governor. In that way, he was saying that he would be Joseph Smith's right-hand man, even as Muhammad had a right-hand man, and that he could benefit him through his post as governor. Joseph Smith rejected that offer, said he would not be used in such a political manner, and then stated for the record that James Arlington Bennett was not his right-hand man, but God was his right-hand man. Once again, affirming that, not that Joseph Smith was greater than God, but that God was greater than James Arlington Bennett. So once again, as in all three of these quotes we've had from the documented history of the church, we have seen that taking it out of context completely distorts the meaning. Now, in order to take it out of context, the anti-Mormons first had to see it in context. They know what they're doing. They know they're misrepresenting the prophet, but they go ahead and do it anyway because their goal is not to be honest. Their goal is not to be Christian. Their goal is not to be truthful, but their goal is to destroy Mormonism at any cost and at any price. 
So that is the conclusion of Lecture 5 in my series from 1989 Institute class, Defending the Faith. I hope you've enjoyed this lecture. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.